Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Federal agencies, you've got a bit of a reprieve from sequestration budget cuts that were expected to start on January 1st. The Office of Management and Budget says agencies do not have to figure out how to cut that 1% from their discretionary budgets in the short term anyway. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me with why this is the case. And Jason, maybe a quick reminder here to start with on why that 1% discretionary budget cut is even on the table in the first place. It brings up that old term, Tom, sequestration. We don't want to ever talk about it again. It was very painful back several, uh, more than 10 years ago, but it's back as a possibility for 2024. And it all comes back to the debt ceiling deal that President Biden signed into law in June called the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Now, in that bill, basically it said if the Congress does not and the president does not get the bills passed on time uh, for this, for 2024 and 2025, a 1% discretionary spending cut would come into place. And what OMB has said was, actually, hold on, January 1st is coming around the corner, but we're, we don't think we, we're going to have to do that quite yet. But it all tags back to this idea that Congress wanted to almost punish themselves, which in the sense punishing the administration, the executive branch, rather than themselves if they don't get their jobs done. And, and I think uh, I think that's a, been a big concern for a lot of uh, organizations ar- around the government. Yeah, Congress talking about fiscal responsibility sounds like someone talking about sexual morality in a body house, but that's just my way of looking at it. Why did OMB come to this conclusion that the 1% cut won't be needed just yet? OMB put out a frequently asked questions for 2024 discretionary spending, and they sent it to agencies about a week ago in, in, in late December. And what they determined, and again, this gets back up by Congressional Research Service report that we also have linked up on federalnewsnetwork.com that basically said under a short-term continuing resolution, the sequestration cuts do not need to kick in. You do not have to cut that 1%. In fact, OMB said to agencies, take no action on January 1st, and no action should be taken even the short term to worry about this and don't pre uh, do pre-cuts. Don't even worry about it because I think what they're saying is, under the continuing resolution that was passed and signed into law, and Tom, as again, another reminder here, President Biden signed that into law mid-November, right before Thanksgiving, that funded some agencies through January 19th and others through February 2nd. But what OMB is saying is let's see if Congress can get all the bills, uh, 12 spending bills passed, and then we'll see where we stand and decide whether or not we have to do sequestration of 1%. Or by April 30th, they said, if all appropriations bills are not passed, then we will see at that time where we're at in terms of having needing to cut. And, and, and again, I think I just want to reiterate here, this is part of the reason why they don't believe the sequestration is necessary at this point on January 1st, and this goes back to a Congressional Research Service report, is because there are rescissions that are done as part of the continuing resolution that brings agencies, generally speaking, underneath the caps that were set in the FRA back in June. Right. So I wonder if this also indicates that agencies have not been spending at what they perceive to be their maximum allowance, maybe because they were afraid of this happening, and now they're coming in under. What we hear time and again during continuing resolutions is you can't do any new starts. You can't really look at anything that can be considered new spending. So I think, Tom, generally speaking, what we've seen over the years is agencies seem to kind of pull back to a certain extent on their spending under a continuing resolution. They don't even want to spend what they spent the previous year to a certain extent because they're worried about, well, when Congress does pass the budget, if we are spending at a rate that's too high, we're going to have to have bigger cuts later in the year. And I think this is what you hear from uh, contractors and vendors who say, hey, 
what's going on with contract one or contract two? Why hasn't it come out the door yet? Why haven't they awarded it yet? And I think there's a lot of that, that has a very trickle down effect on all agency spending. So uh, I'm not sure they know yet how much they've spent. I mean, I'm sure they're following it in terms of their general ledger, but I'm not sure that's come into play yet. But I think what OMB is saying very much so is let's see what Congress does before we decide to take that 1% haircut. And the last time agencies had that cut, you and I you were both around. This was 2013, the dark landscape wandering through with sequestration that really happened. This is not quite the same situation. Not at all. And, and if you remember from the 2013 during the Obama administration, sequestration was much deeper. It was about $85 billion were cut, about 7.8% from the defense agencies, about 5% from the civilian agencies. This would be much more of a haircut I'll use, a trim. The, you know, I think I've, I've, as I've talked to some people over the past couple months about this, they say it's going to take more effort and spend more money to figure out where that 1% should come from than actually that 1% that Congress is is rescinding back. And what OMB has also said in the frequently asked questions is we will send out basically more guidance. We will figure out how to get to that 1%. It may not be 1% across the board. It could be half a percent here. It could be three quarters of a percent there. It could be 1.2% over here. I think there's still a lot of calculations that are going on. And I think that's the other reason OMB has said, hey, let's not worry about it until we get closer to either A, Congress passing the budgets or B, the April 30th deadline. All right. So that sword in the ceiling is going to stay stuck there for the meantime. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah. 
excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency 
And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, 
having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.